From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. The sculpture looks so much like a homeless man that people have called the cops on it. It's a life-size sculpture of a person huddled under a blanket on a park bench. Get close to the artwork in any of the cities that have a copy of it, like Toronto or Rome, and take a close look at the feet. You'll find two wounds carved into the bronze, the only signs that the person shown here is Jesus himself. It's a powerful sculpture and a challenging one. It's inspired by the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus tells his disciples that whenever they feed the hungry or visit the prisoner or take care of the sick, they're caring for Christ himself. The artist behind the homeless Jesus statue is Timothy Schmaltz, and he's my guest today. Tim is a devout Catholic from Canada who uses sculpture as a form of ministry. Tim is an absolutely prolific sculptor. He usually starts his day in the studio at 4 a.m. He creates large, visually arresting works that are on display all over the world, including a recent piece for the Vatican that was the first sculpture installed permanently in St. Peter's Square in 400 years. This sculpture, called Angels Unawares, is 20 feet long and depicts more than 140 migrants and refugees. Most recently, Tim has finished a series of 100 sculptures depicting all 100 cantos of Dante's Divine Comedy. I asked him why he decided to take on such a massive project, and how he approaches sculpting as a spiritual practice. Tim is so good at taking us into the mind and heart of the artist. I just loved hearing from him. I bet his reflections will have you googling where you can find a sculpture of his on display near your own hometown. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Tim Schmaltz, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you? I'm very good. Actually, I just uh, got back from uh, a very exciting sculpture. I'm working on a sculpture of Rene Girard, um, one of my heroes. Uh, So, yeah, so I'm usually working on several pieces, usually wake up really early. So this is kind of my uh, lunch, a nice little break here. That's great. Yeah. So we're going to, we'll talk about, you are just a prodigious sculptor in terms of just, I don't understand how you do this. So, uh, and actually, you know what, we can get right into that. So one of your biggest projects you've just finished um, is uh, essentially sculpting the divine comedy, taking, making a hundred sculptures, one per canto of the divine comedy through the Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. So my first question for you, having just, you finished this, right? A hundred sculptures? Indeed. Okay, so are you crazy? <laughs> well, let me talk about uh, the Divine Comedy. And, and it's so interesting because uh, it's been with me. Dante has been with me ever since I began sculpting. In fact, I remember the first sculpture gift I, I ever received was from my mother. I was 17 years old, and it was The Thinker. And mm-hmm. that was really... Uh, my first introduction to Dante. I love the sculpture. Later, I realized that it was before it was called the thinker, it was called the poet. And it's a portrait of Dante that was in Rodin's great gates of hell. He pulled it out like several other of his pieces, standalone pieces, and he used it. But it's interesting because um, I love Dante. I uh, I think it's, it's one of the greatest introductions to uh, Catholicism over the, the centuries. Um, but I had one problem with it, a big problem, and that is that um, there's too much of an emphasis on the inferno. In fact, most people naively, I, I think if you, if you gave people a quiz, they would think that Dante is the person that wrote about hell. Stop. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Even, even Rodin. I love Rodin. Um, but, you know, he did the gates of hell. What about the gates of purgatory? What about the gates of paradise? And so um, several years ago, uh, I think it was four years ago, I had uh, my sculpture of the homeless Jesus installed in Florence. And it was the first time in years I was in Florence. And as I was walking around, I saw Inferno Pizzeria. I saw everything Inferno, Inferno, Inferno. In fact, there was a movie with um, uh, Tom Hanks in called The Inferno, which was kind of a little bit about uh, the Divine Comedy. 
And so after I created uh, the Angels Underwears, I wanted to get into a big project. And uh, so I decided to, uh, to uh, hope and think about the idea of creating a very authentic, thorough representation of the Divine Comedy that would start in Inferno and, and, and finish in Paradise. And uh, so essentially I just started uh, sculpting Canto One. And it was an amazing experience because um, it allowed me the opportunity to um, not only study the text in a specific way that I was going to visually translate it. So I had to kind of be a director. What's the exciting point in this canto? Uh, canto? Um, what, what needs to be represented for the person who has never read Dante and also for the person that might be very familiar with him? And so I wanted, I, I kind of arranged uh, each composition to be very, very uh, uh, open to, uh, to showing the excitement, the power, the imagery within the Divine Comedy. 100 cantos, very exciting. So, and we'll link to uh, some images of, of those so people can, uh, as they listen, can take a look at them. But maybe just talk a little bit about then how you went about putting these together, what, what you wanted to do. They look sort of like book pages there. I mean, not to say like they're smaller than some of the other things you've done. Each one, you add them yeah. all up. It's a lot of space. But so, yeah, talk us through a kind of what each one feels like. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the size of it, uh, what, I, what you're, you're correct in saying that they're, they're kind of like a, a book format. They're, they're uh, almost like sculptural murals in sculpture world. We call them relief sculptures. Um, so in a sense, they're like a, a two foot by one foot page. I don't have one here to show you. Well, you can you can bring them up on the screen. Um, and um, what I did within that space, I had a limited amount of space, which is good because there's so much, it's so charged with so much each canto that it was kind of my discipline to only have a set size on each. Um, and also if you're going to have 100 of them, it's a massive sculpture park when, when they're all finished. In fact, usually I work on, on uh, five uh, at a time, five or six at a time. And I tried to work on 12 at a time and I cannot do it. Mentally, it was just way too much. But so I had a friendly amount of, of uh, cantos to work with in each kind of section. And I would start out by uh, reading a couple translations of, uh, uh, of Dante, various translations. And I would then do some simple sketches and very loose sketches because I didn't want my first impression to determine what the hour upon hour of actually creating these would, uh, uh, would perhaps put a perimeter around it that, that would not be uh, advantageous. And so then what I would do is I would, uh, at four in the morning, I would sculpt the Dante cantos till nine. So I'd usually put in around uh, a substantial period of time each day working on them. And then I would pull myself away and I'd work on my other sculptures. Um, it, it was fascinating because in the evening, I would check out what other artists have done with those cantos. And to my surprise, early on in the project, I realized that um, a lot of blind spots within the divine comedy uh, areas that were never represented with artwork and i was i was shocked at this and then talking to some friends of mine they mentioned that uh, every canto has never been represented uh, in sculpture or in painting fully per canto 100 and i thought my goodness this is insane it's a seven 700 years of dante and no artist has has done every single canto and midway through the project i realized why it's just way <laughs> too much work <laughs> but um but it, it, it's fascinating because um i i had a great advantage too that other artists didn't have is i could look down and see what they did and they couldn't see what i i didn't even know how mine would, would eventually look but that was really interesting because um, I know like mo most of the uh, artistic representations of Dante were pre a hundred years. Well, you know, I think the last, the last uh, epic work was Gustav Dory, which I love, which I think he, he did those etchings, you know, the black and white. When, if you Google Dante, you'll see his drawings or his, his, uh, his etchings. Um, and they're just awesome. Um, uh, but one, one of the things that I noticed 
and it was com kind of common within the representations of, of Dante, is it was almost like if you took a, fo a photo, if you had a camera or a Polaroid, and you, and you, and you took a picture, that's what a lot of the artists represented. Um, and so um, what I felt is that uh, midway through the project, or even a little bit earlier, I felt that it becomes boring quick. Um, because after, after you're done with the Inferno, um, it's a lot of talking. And most of the images are embedded and, and the gems are what they're really talking about. So I made a shift uh, um, early on that I would, I would just kind of give a visual representation in Purgatory and Paradise about the conversation. I would, I would bring the conversation to life with sculpture instead of just having two heads talking, whether it be Virgil and Beatrice or Beatrice and Dante. <laughs> um, and then I also realized that I don't need to put Dante in every single canto. I don't need, I don't need his head <laughs> right there in a corner or at the top, right? Um, and in a sense, uh, I also was very sensitive about uh, kind of making it visually exciting. Um, I, I know uh, Botticelli he, uh, with his paradise, sphere after sphere after sphere, and and I thought I don't I don't really I'm not going to try to give a map of the divine. I mean I'm not going to try to create a map of uh, of uh, paradise or or, or uh, purgatory. I'm just going to pull out really exciting things. Now the premise I I kind of worked off is if I never heard of the divine comedy before. Um, I want to see something that's really exciting that would inspire me to read the Divine Comedy. But then later on in, in the project, I realized that this might be the only shot. You know, people are so busy. Like, it, what's fascinating is Dante wrote the Divine Comedy in the vulgar, so more people could could access it. The uh, the visual is that right now. So, I, I, in a sense, I felt that. Um, that this this is the only shot I'll have to bring bring forth Dante to people, um, to go in to, to go into a Dante garden to walk into a sculpture garden, that's that's easy to sit down in a living room, and, and read uh, the Divine Comedy. That that's very difficult for so many people. So being sensitive of that, I try to put as much in it as possible, and to make it as exciting as possible. <clears throat> Yeah, I wonder if we can zoom in on maybe one example or a couple of. So you mentioned again, you have to approach the text differently than maybe you've read it before if you're looking for some visual element to depict in your work. And if there was there one that you can think of or a couple in which that kind of surprised you, things that you noticed that were new, that your finished product for that particular canto ended up being different than you would have imagined going into it. Uh, I'm just curious if you could use like one example as a kind of a, a, a way of looking in at your at your process. Oh, um, I wish I had some images in front of me, <clears throat> but um, I think it was, uh, I, I forget the number of the canto, but, but uh, I think it was, uh, uh, Statius or Virgil who mentioned that um, the problem with the church is um, uh, they take on uh, the role of, of uh, a government and uh, the government in a sense takes on the role of the church and there's that intertwining that, that destroys and corrupts uh, the spirituality. And so on that, that, can that canto what I did was I have this little girl with a pathway with a uh, a figure, a religious figure with a mitre uh, that trips with a road that tangles up. And then one, one, uh, one road goes up to uh, this heavenly place. And then the other road goes to a place that looks very, very much like Rome. Um, and so there I'm taking uh, the idea of, uh, of the, uh, of the uh, uh, creation or, or the problems within the church during that period of time and I'm giving life to that. Another, and this is a fun one, where, where uh, it suggested the corruption of Florence today. And so I have this scene of um, Florence became too big back then, and, and just a lot of craziness started happening. So what I did was I created the walls of Florence with a, an ocean of figures, and then the, the figures in the foreground 
they're very lustful and doing a lot of sinful things and then worked within their uh, the, the representation of some of the people as pigs and different animals. And uh, one of the quotations, uh, uh, like he gives an analogy, as a body that has food piled up on food, this is what's happening to, to Florence. So I have this huge obese man on top of the pile of people with on top of him just being weighed down by stacks of food. So it's if someone would look at it, they say, what on earth is going on here? And then it, it creates kind of this visual curiosity. Um, and also, it, uh, I'll, I'll measure that with, with another one that is a little bit more serious, a little bit more represented. I also wanted to emphasize the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Christian aspect of it. Um, I think that one of the reasons why our culture pulls only uh, interest from the inferno is because when you get to purgatory, it's Christian, it's Catholic, purgatory, right? And so what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to kind of uh, uh, look face to face to this. So when, they, uh, uh, when Dante enters uh, uh, purgatory, he sees a relief sculpture, actual sculpture, uh, uh, representing uh, humility with the Annunciation. So there I'll focus right on the Annunciation and bring that to the, the prominence of, of, the, of, the, of, of the specific sculpture. And so it's, it's decisions like that with the spirit and, and the heart of bringing forth and being proud that it is a Catholic poem and, uh, and, and highlighting those, which, is, which was very exciting. Is that process for you like a spiritual one, a prayerful one? Do you feel like you're kind of tapping into grace and then trying to channel that? Like, what? How do you, as a as a person of faith, how do you see your work uh, as connected to to your faith and to the gifts that you've been given? Well, um, I, I actually believe that it's a form of prayer doing sculpture, and um, so at the best best case, it's a form of prayer, and at the worst, it's just absolute drudgery <laughs> but um i try Sounds to like create, <laughs> i try to create my environment to be very prayerful um for instance within the divine work on the divine comedy i kid you not i had on repeat the divine comedy unabridged read out on a tape or on my, my my phone here right um and so when i would be working on these cantos i would put that on repeat and I would listen to it over and over and over again. And I, I kid you not, I have listened to the Divine Comedy more than any other human being alive today. So not only am I the only person to create all 100 cantos, but I'm, I, I have the prize for listening to the Divine Comedy over and over and over again. And it's interesting because, um, and that's, that's, that's kind of my hope, of, and that, that's kind of how I perceive spirituality. I, I think that, because a lot of my sculptures, some of the, the Eureka moments, some of the great sculptures that I did uh, came without me being essentially uh, top heavy or, 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 or very conscious of them. They just, they just kind of fell on my mind, fell in my heart. And then I, I just, like St. Francis says, it was an instrument and I just frantically uh, created the pieces, right? Like for instance, the sculpture that I'm working on right now, I have to s show you a picture of it because it's, it's, it's uh, really cool. It's my favorite uh, uh, philosopher, thinker, uh, Rene Girard. And I love Rene Girard and I wanna promote him as much as I can. And I, I'm a sculptor, so I might as well do a sculpture of him, right? So on that piece there, um, I was thinking, how do I do a sculpture of Rene Girard? Though he has a very, very, uh, uh, amazing uh, face, uh, phenomenal features. It's not enough to get people excited about Rene Girard just by having a head on a stick. Um, I, I needed to do something really well, but his his work is so complex. I couldn't see doing something like I did with the Divine Comedy, where I'm taking books and trying to to represent them. Um, and also, I think it'd be too much for someone like Rene Girard to to. Uh, represent his what, what his ideas in sculpture. Perhaps sometime I'll do that. But I'm working on a sculpture in my studio, another sculpture where I have the Holy Spirit that's covering a homeless person with a blanket. And I was kind of inspired by uh, Isaiah 58, where uh, uh, it's our duty uh, to clothe the naked. And I heard that and I thought, oh, wouldn't that be 
awesome to have the Holy Spirit represented in a dove, uh, kind of co- with holding onto this blanket, kind of covering this homeless person. I thought it was a great idea. So I'm working in my studio, and my studio is so jammed with sculptures that the only place I could put this is in the center of my studio. And there happens to be a skylight that comes down. Uh, and at 11 o'clock every day as I was working on it, there would be this blinding beam, like a little beam coming on the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, oh, this is I can't even see. This is horrible. Maybe I should cover that up. And at one time, I took my spray bottle because I worked in clay initially. And I'm spraying down the dove. And then a rainbow comes over the beam of light over top of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> He's covering, helping a homeless person. And at that point, I thought, this is cool. <laughs> and then so I thought, light, this is, this is a phenomenal thing I never thought about, in, uh, using light as a part of a sculpture. And then I realized René Girard. René Girard is absolutely amazing what he did. He, t- he, he takes um, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, uh, 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 James Frazier, all these great... Uh, uh, more secular uh, uh, literary figures and, and different different uh, uh, different departments, and within his discovery of them, he finds Christianity and and he explains Christianity, and it's just really phenomenal. And so, I, I realized that wouldn't it be great to have a sculpture of Rene Girard, say, writing or something like that, with a bookcase of all these uh, all these great works of literature. And in the bookcase, there would be space between some of the books that would be kind of in the shape of a cross, like the negative space. So when the light comes through the sculpture, you would see a beam of light in the form of a cross. And in a sense, I think that's a beautiful thing about René Girard with, with, his, with his work. He, he presents Christianity in such a subtle but powerful way. Um, through his work, the light of the cross shines through. And so I started to work on René Girard like that. But it wasn't until I had that beam of light coming on the Holy Spirit that I even thought about that. Um, and so I, I think that to be an artist, you, when you think, when I think that it's a form of prayer, it's not hurting anyone. And in fact, by me elevating it up into that, that level, um, perhaps influences the way I, I, I create. Um, if, if I consider it something spiritual and, and instead of something just uh, manual. And so what I've done was I've tried to create an environment um, before I started reading Dante obsessively. Um, and I was an exception. Usually I, I listen to the Bible nonstop over and over again. And in fact, um, uh, several years before I did the Angels Unaware sculpture for St. Peter's Square, um, that, that idea of be welcoming to strangers, many have entertained angels unawares, hit me one day in my studio. And it's interesting because I must have listened to it or read that many different times, hundreds of times. But it was just just this one time that it really hit me. And I thought, my goodness, I got to do a sculpture of that. And so for a year before I did the angels unawares sculpture, I was struggling with how to represent that specific uh, uh, scripture. How do you do it? And I, one of the things I do, I go on the internet and I see what other artists, how other artists have represented that. And it was like a blind spot. The only, I saw Hebrews 13 too on coffee cups and plaques, but why hasn't anyone done a sculpture of this? It's one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible. But it was only through repetition that it really sunk into me that this is so beautiful and it warrants a sculpture. And, and so... You know, it's fascinating because then I, I, just to continue with the angels unawares, it was it was amazing because I went to uh, Rome and I was talking to Cardinal Cherney and, and uh, uh, he uh, asked me if I could create a, a new sculpture on the theme of refugees. And um, he told me that his, his big concern about... Uh, about the way people perceive the, the migrants um, and... Uh, and I realized that um, that it was my duty to come up with with a sculpture that specifically represents uh, the migrants in the in the spirit that 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 he really desires. So I came back, and it wasn't more than two days back from Rome in my my studio in Canada, where it just the whole idea just came to me. The angel is in the middle of a crowd, a big crowd, 
of people from all over the world, uh, all historical periods of time. And the angel is, is, is right in the center, but you can only see the wings because of the, the, the crowd of people. And then the wings become everyone's. And then, uh, so, so it was a really uh, amazing experience, but that again, uh, that was like an epiphany. And, um, likewise with, with other pieces, they just all of a sudden I have the, uh, uh, the, this, this insight to create it. And then I have to do it. I think one thing about being a sculptor is you have to consider the currency of your, your hours really cheap. Um, and that's one thing that I've done over my life is I, I work so many different, like I, I, I usually start working at four in the morning. I work nonstop. Um, and, um, by doing that, you, you open yourself up to, uh, potential creativity. Whereas if you have a finite set amount of time and you're going to consider your time so special, it's, you're not going to, you know, play with it. You're not going to experiment with it. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the interesting things about being, being a sculptor, uh, or I think any visual artist, it, it, you just have to get used to the, the solitary life and also spending hour upon hour because it's, you know, it could be the 11th hour that something comes and you're only going to get that unless you accumulate up this, this library of time that is, that you've spent. Yeah. I love your kind of the way you describe uh, your process there and how it's connected almost like for this posture, like you're going to kind of create this, this habit of noticing, paying attention through prayer, through listening, through repetition, almost making yourself available for those moments of uh, inspiration or creativity. And I think of that again, very analogous to what Ignatian spirituality is about, what, you know, our, our, our life as followers of Jesus is supposed to like, trying to pay attention better, right? Like noticing um, how God might be at work in our life in ways we might miss, but just trying to practice to get better at noticing. And then so when you have those moments, then can can receive them. So but there are times I'm sure in which you don't you're not like flying on inspiration, um, but you have to uh, but you still have to get up and, and go. And sometimes you find sometimes like through that process of just working with clay that you'll come to something through the process as opposed to having that idea that you know you can just boom i can go and execute but you have to kind of learn your way into it uh through through experimenting yeah yeah i i i think that that i've been sculpted for like obsessively for for 32 years and so that's like a normal person sculpting for 62 years (laughs) double the time so i've been sculpting before i was born um but (laughs) No, it's what I, what 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 you develop though is a library of different ideas, and some of them some of them work, and some of them don't work. And I think that one of the things that I have to be very familiar or, or very very comfortable with is um, if something isn't working, just throw it away and not feel. And it's it's funny because perhaps it's because it's physical stuff that, that you're making. You're making something. Um, you can become attached to it to your disadvantage. And the perfect example of that is uh, um, I started working on a human trafficking sculpture right after the angels unawares. And um, the interesting thing is um, the, the, the subject matter, I, w- I, I got off running on the project and um, I wasn't deeply uh, moved or aware of the subject matter till later on. Because like, like Dante, uh, in the evenings, I would read Dante and look at different representations of Dante with, with my pieces like the human trafficking. Likewise, in the evening, I would do more research on human trafficking. And it was, it, it was deep, deep, deep horror that every night would ratchet down as I would learn more about human trafficking and about how brutal humanity can be to humans. And... Um, so then I would go to work uh, and uh, I would be working on my initial inspiration idea, which was a bunch of slaves in a slave cart and St. Paquita opening up the slave cart, the, the bars of the slave cart. And, uh, and so I was working on this and I had some stumbling blocks with the idea because historically there wasn't any slave cart. I wanted to get a, representations of an authentic slave cart couldn't find it. And I realized, oop, there is no such thing as a, a slave card. And I thought, well, this is artistic license here. There's a slave card now, right? So I started to work on it. And um, 
but at, at nighttime, I, w- I would read more and more about uh, the, the poor souls that are trapped in this in this this horrible horrible inferno. And um, I was sculpting my slave cart this one day, um, just the model. I usually start with models, and I said to my mind, I said, "They're sucking our children underground." And I thought about uh, the, the Browning, I think it's a Browning poem, the Pied Piper of Hanlon, and about how the ground opened up and these children got sucked in. A very beautiful uh, uh, poem from the, the Grimm stories. And, I, and I, I couldn't get that image out of my mind about, about that's what's happening. They're just, they're just sucking human beings, uh, people's, people's daughters, people's sons, underground. They're just... And, and, and then I, I had the idea that um, St. Paquita should be opening up the ground and letting the, the, the slaves, the modern slaves, free. And I just had this image of St. Paquita being this, this hero, just, you know, using our strength and pulling up this, this sewer grate or some manhole or some cover of the ground and having the, the struggling uh, human traffic finally being released. And it would go from... Uh, seeing little heads coming out and hands to people full out racing towards their freedom. And so I'm still uh, sculpting a slave cart because I already put in like 100 hours on this. And I thought, Tim, you're going to make this, this sculpture is going to ruin the best sculpture if you keep working on it. And I said, and I I realized that. So I took the sculpture, you know, it's like a half a ton of clay and I just, dropped it on the ground, destroyed it. And mm. then that, I just felt so relieved because now I could do St. Paquita lifting the figures out of the ground. So I started to work on that. And man, it just changed the whole, the whole project. Um, and in my nighttime research, I, I actually picked up a quote from Pope Francis. Uh, and he stated that human trafficking will always exist if it's kept underground. Mm. When I read that, I knew I had, I had, I, this was God's will that this design was it. And, uh, but I had to take courage of, of considering, like I said before, my, my time isn't worth anything. It's, hmm. it's, you can't hold it sacred. You have to just throw it away if it, if it needs to be thrown away. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, other situations is, uh, is just, being confronted with with the world, like the homeless Jesus, for instance. Here I am, cloistered in my studio for uh, I can't tell you how many months. Um, but I finally go to Toronto. I, I finally have a actually the uh, uh, Anglican uh, Church St James uh, Cathedral has this nativity uh, exhibition at Christmas time every year, and they wanted me to actually come and do a nativity for their exhibition. So it's like the first time in like around four months I was out of my studio. And it was the first time that I was in a big, big city. And like I live in a small hamlet here, St. Jacob's, and it's we don't have any homeless people here. We are, hardly have traffic, right? And so I had that. I, I went into Toronto after not being there for a while, and I was just my nerves were on edge because of all the busyness. And I I noticed uh, this on on the University Avenue on on a uh, I think it's a Brock or a Beck's monument right there in the middle of the day in in november there's a human form uh completely shrouded uh by a blanket and i looked at it and i i I just thought i just had this almost this this deep spiritual punch that that's sacred that's that's jesus there and it was just like i just felt I, i i saw a vision of something holy and I couldn't, I, it couldn't escape my mind. It was haunting. And I, I, I have to attribute it to the fact that if, when you're not in a big city for a while, those, the homeless people become very, very visible. And after a while, it slowly, slowly fades away to just a part of the city. But at that moment, um, it really, it really hit me. And, and so I thought, I have to, I'm a sculptor. I have to do something with that. So I created a maquette almost exactly for what I saw there. Um, but I moved the, the blanket up a bit so you could see the, uh, the wounds of the feet. 
And I also, instead of having it on a slab of granite, I actually had to have the figure on a, a park bench, which, uh, uh, which was for various reasons, uh, visually, uh, better. But I thought if I didn't leave my studio and if I wasn't, uh, uh, in that welcoming, uh, spiritual state, um, that sculpture wouldn't exist. And it's interesting um, because yeah. you think I can almost like doing sit-ups. If I spend so much time in my studio, eventually I'll, I'll get great at artwork. Um, but it's also those experiences like that that are outside of your normal world that, that can really impact your art. Yeah, I think of it. So we can jump right into the, the Homeless Jesus sculpture, which I think is one that probably uh advanced your career or led I, that's how i first heard of you anyway i think it was a story on npr it was about one i don't know if it was in nashville uh one of the the homeless jesus statues which again is a life size on a bench someone's looking like sleeping there you've had a, at least one instance if not multiple instances of people calling the police uh because they think this is a homeless person there which just i mean for me how many levels of like symbolism does that hit um but so just yeah so you now these are in a number of cities how many places are, are the the homeless jesus uh sculptures now that you know of full-size ones oh it's 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 unbelievable um the uh uh they're they're in major cities all around the world actually um and um the um yeah, the, the the power of that piece. What I what I have to and and really I think it was a confirmation to me that um, artwork, um, in a sense, Christian artwork has to work harder. Um, and oftentimes, um, I, I feel that with with artwork in general, um, but especially uh, 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 Catholic or Christian artwork, um, it I think that the eternal truths are there. Um, but they've they've not been represented in a way uh, that is accessible to so many people, um, and so the, the homeless Jesus, uh, I, I do believe, is is a piece that that distills uh, some of the awesome parts of the gospel and presents it in a way um, that is communicated uh, with 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 big impact. And I, 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 that's that's my belief is that if if uh, a sculpture um, should be a form of communication and to speak clearly is 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 uh, the challenge of the artist and it's not the other way. Um, someone it should all it should be presented in a way that 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 people can get the the message and and so I, what I find with 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 uh, the Bible with Christianity is is if it is represented authentically it's a perfect way of of uh, of evangelizing if it's done uh, uh in a way that 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 is really pure and and direct and i think about matthew 25 and uh, there's very few representations of artwork in in the centuries that represent uh that which i've and i think a lot of people consider one of their favorite parts of the bible um but why, when i was hungry you fed me when i was thirsty you gave me a drink jesus identifying with the the homeless in this case too yeah and there is that there is that um that eureka moment within the text that um when did we see you you know there's that confusion well when did we see you hungry when did we see you in prison uh you know when, when did we let you in when you're a stranger and then there's that punch and it's, it's so poetic. It's so beautiful. Whenever you've uh, done this to the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. And so just like, just like the text, the sculpture, the Matthew 25 sculptures, Homeless Jesus being the flagship, it does that. It, it's theater in a sense where there is that suspension of what's going on here. And then the fact that it's Jesus is revealed uh, when one gets closer to the sculpture or one investigates. And so it's it's a perfect kind of uh, uh, conforming to the sequential narration of that gospel text, and it's almost like the angels unawares too. Twenty feet. There's 140 figures in the big uh, refugee piece, and I thought I needed 140 figures to do that, so the message would be soft, so the message would be discreet. If I did, if I did a uh, 
African refugee, an Asian refugee, and a European refugee, and then I put an angel there. The message would, okay, so it's still angels unawares, but it would be so in your face that it would almost be a, a, a turnoff. And, and so um, the interesting thing is that, um, I, I'm, I forgot my train of thought here, but um, it's consistent with, with the Bible in a sense, and it's consistent how, how people would read, read the Bible. And I, th I think that that's one of the beautiful things about it. Uh, one of the fascinating things, someone, a, a chaplain at a, a Catholic high school came up to me this one time and said, oh, the first time I saw the homeless Jesus, I actually thought it was just a sculpture of a homeless person. And he sat on the bench and he put his, he was about to put his hands on the feet and only de then did he realize the wounds. And that was like, Oh, that's perfect, right? So he has a spiritual moment. I love doing that. I love that's I think one of the powerful things about sculpture. If an opportunity like that arises where you can have a sculpture that's that someone actually experiences, you can't do that with painting. You you can't put it in the environment. And that that's what I think is 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 valuable about sculptures. You can take that uh, gospel text and you can put it on a street and then people interact with it. Yeah, and that, that is happening with angels unawares at St. Peter's Square. Pope Francis, just for the, the World Day of Migrants and Refugees in late September, during his Angelus, he said to everyone gathered in St. Peter's Square, before you leave the Vatican, go see this sculpture, encounter it. Um, you were there when it was first unveiled and got to see Pope Francis. What was his reaction like? And obviously, it's something that's moved him. He's continued to uh, talk about it uh, and promote it. Um, what was that like to be there with him and to see his reaction? Oh, it was amazing. Um, the, uh, the installation of the sculpture, um, I have usually have deadlines for my sculpture. This one was very special. I was told that there was going to be 50,000 people in St. Peter's Square at the unveiling and Pope Francis himself would be, would be there for the unveiling. And, uh, but throughout the year before working on it, I always felt that um, uh, Pope Francis was, was there behind my shoulder as I was sculpting it. Um, in fact, uh, some of the decisions on, on who's who in the piece, I said, hmm, what would Pope Francis want me to do here? And, uh, and obviously my conclusion was he wanted me to do the extreme. He wanted me to do the, the, the reality of the situation, right? And so to, to finally after, well, more than a year, I think it was like two years working on the piece to finally um, have it unveiled and Pope Francis to, to actually see it. It was just uh, an overwhelming, uh, wonderful experience. Um, he, uh, Pope Francis doesn't speak English. I don't speak Italian or Spanish. Um, but after, uh, actually, Cardinal Cherney uh, and, uh, actually walked uh, uh, Pope Francis around the sculpture. And it takes a while to look at all the different figures there. And uh, so I was translating, I, I was speaking to Cardinal Cherney and Cardinal Cherney was translating to Pope Francis. So we went around and at the time I was fresh from being, being completed. I knew every single face and I knew every single character. So I was telling the, the story about, about the different, the different people there. And afterwards, uh, after the tour around the piece, Pope Francis just looked straight at, straight at my eyes and he, he takes his hands and he puts them on his chest. And I thought that is one of the most beautiful gestures he could do. And I, I gave it everything. Uh, literally, I would work on the piece, well, four in the morning till, till uh, I, I literally could not work anymore on it. And it's interesting because when you're working on, on a piece like that, it's not your physical, but it's your mental. It, it becomes very exhausting mentally. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was a, an amazing experience to, to actually create that. Um, just to, to bring it back to the beginning, as you mentioned, uh, the ability to encounter your work kind of out uh, somewhere it is and is a, an evangelization opportunity, a chance for people to have an experience um, that might not be able to happen in any other forum. If people want to see your Divine Comedy series, where can they encounter that? How is that uh, installed? Um, what will that process be like? Well, that's what I'm working on right now is creating a, a, a select group of uh, Dante Gardens. Hmm. And, um, and what, I, what I love about it is, is um, well, a couple things. 
is uh, these will be sculpture parks or sculpture Dante sculpture gardens that will be uh, uh, starting at the inferno and you'll be able to walk throughout hell, go to purgatory and get to heaven all within uh, an afternoon. So, but it's one of the, one of the great things about it is um, it is that it, it's taking it into kind of a, a beautiful tactile experience that's outside great thing about a lot of the artists that have done dante before they're in museums now they're under glass right these, mm. these are cast in bronze they're, they're great for more than a thousand years outside people can touch the cantos the sun or the rain the clouds will be up there trees birds this is this is what what i want to bring dante in and have that experience the other benefit about it is i heard that 90 percent of the people that read the divine comedy stop after they're done the inferno well there's going to be a pathway that will have arrows saying one way so you'll be forced you're not gonna after oh these are amazing inferno is great let's go kids no you're gonna have a pathway that in order to get out of the dante gardens you're going to have to go through heaven but that's cool right now um uh, st michael's college in toronto is uh confirmed their location for the canadian dante gardens um robinson's college in the center of Cambridge University in the United Kingdom, they just received their first Dante. And the first canto of Dante is uh, has uh, the portrait of Dante mm. actually writing it. I'll, be, uh, I'll give you the website or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's not the Dante that, that looks like he's just got an honorary degree with his hands folded in his book under. He's in exile. So he, he's hunched over on my life-size bronze portrait and he's literally writing the first canto which is which is beautiful and it's sculpted it's you know midway through life i found myself in a in a dark forest and so that's how it starts um i'm hoping to have um uh one other uh cast soon in the united states so america can have one dante gardens um the original cast they're in florence right now um the, the city of Florence is uh, deliberating. They, ha they have three places that I heard of that are being considered for the permanent installation. But right now they're they're just temporary installed at the Badia Forentia, which is actually where I finished the final canto. Hmm. I got the 99 and the 700th anniversary, September the 14th. I saved the final one so I could do it in Florence, in the, oh. yeah, in the chapel where Dante was first presented to the public. Hmm. And uh, so it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And I thought I can have that for the rest of my life to do the final canto right there where Dante, Dante walked and lived, right? Um, but um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing project. And I, like I, I said, I think that Dante is a, is a great, um, tool for evangelizing as i was in florence sculpting the final canto i thought to myself how many people did dante in the last 700 years bring to to christianity or give insight to their own spirituality in 700 years how many people has that this 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 poet touched and so by me doing this um in in the 700th anniversary, finishing the 700th anniversary. It's taking that torch of Dante and actually raising it high for, for future generations too. I'd say we can, we have to use anything. St. Uh, Francis of Assisi said, preach everywhere you go and if necessary, even use sculpture. And I really agree with what he said there. <laughs> but no, it's a good tool. And to, to, to highlight Dante is, is, is an honor with it. Well, I, Tim Schmaltz, thank you so much for coming on. I loved this conversation uh, just to get an insight into your process and, and how you approach your your ministry, really. Um, and to, yeah, I just can't wait to, to visit one of those gardens or multiple gardens uh, someday and uh, to get to uh, St. Peter's Square and see angels unawares. Um, I, yeah, I just think it's such powerful uh, uh, gifts, really, uh, to the world. And that really help us kind of... Uh, think about and reflect on and approach our, our faith in new ways and creative ways. And so, yeah, just thank you for all that and for taking this time and best of luck uh, in finishing your Rene Girard work and then whatever project comes to you next. Excellent. Thank you.
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.